0: We've got the hot take for you here on KXSC 1560. Of course, on the tuning radio app as well. This is Cooper Perkins, your host. And I'm excited because we've got a new face in the studio. And I'm not talking guests. I'm talking a new friend. I'm talking someone permanent. I'm talking Garrett, the intern. So get excited. Garrett's going to come on with me in just a moment or two. For now, I want to talk a little bit of Peyton Manning. It's so interesting how this week has developed following the Super Bowl. The way things started out, we had Cam Newton just so heavily scrutinized following that Super Bowl loss, particularly how he handled that postgame interview. We talked about it last week on the program, but all of a sudden, we're talking about a different Super Bowl quarterback, and there's some stuff here that I know Garrett's dying to talk about. I know I'm dying to talk about it, so let's introduce everybody to Garrett Schwartz. Garrett, you're on, you're live. Say hi to the beautiful people.
1: How's it going, people? I'm uh, super excited to be here, work with Cooper for the semester. Uh, Really excited to be part of the hot take.
0: Well, there you have it. Garrett Schwartz on for his first ever hot take. This will be hot casted as well. Just like every week, you can catch us after the fact tomorrow morning on SoundCloud, iTunes, or the TuneIn Radio app under The Hot Take. Also, follow us on Twitter at the Hot Take. Go ahead and tweet us any questions, concerns, or arguments that you have. But Garrett, we started things off. I brought up Peyton Manning, but... It, it, oh we're in this situation where all of a sudden his dirty laundry is coming out and there there certainly has been the argument made that there's no such thing as a clean elite athlete you know there's been some discussion like try and find a truly well-adjusted elite athlete and and you'll struggle to do so but in the case of Peyton Manning it, it almost feels like this came out of left field not necessarily because of anything but just in my personal opinion, I feel like he's outlived his expiration date. And we were talking a little bit before the show, you mentioned Brett Favre, and that's exactly who came to mind when I was going through reading some of this stuff in advance. That's a guy who just outlived his welcome. And each time he came back into the fold, something else came up, and and, and that's when we started to get a glimpse at, oh, maybe this guy that we've gotten so comfortable with isn't who we thought he was. Now, now, what do you think in terms of Peyton's Brett Favre comparison and kind of how this has developed in the last three, four days?
1: Now, first off, when you're looking at Peyton Manning, the, the fact of the matter is, you know, he didn't look really over the hill until this season. Obviously, the end of the past season, uh, or sorry, the season before they won the Super Bowl, you know, obviously deteriorating a little bit, but he really didn't look this bad until this season. And the, I think the difference really between Brett Favre and Peyton, when you turn when you talk about kind of you know, wearing out, you're welcome. Brett Favre, you know, made it on two or three other teams after he left Green Bay. You know, he really looked like he was done at the end of his career. But Peyton Manning, really, this is the first season, you know, where we're kind of like, great, right off into the sunset. Uh, thanks very much. Have a nice career. Uh, that being said, I I don't really see a lot of similarities. I think Brett Favre, uh, obviously he had the Jen Sturger incident, and, uh, the, but that, that, he, he had kind of multiple accusations. This is really the first time we're hearing something about Peyton Manning. That being said, it it's, happened over a decade ago.
0: You know, the- you, you bring up a really good point with the timeline and is where this came out. And what I want to look at here is amazingly these allegations and the major source of issue for Peyton Manning right now. They're not the HGH allegations. It's the 1996 sexual assault allegation. And and trust me, the supporting documents are extremely condemning. They're concerning. They're disgusting. But it raises the question, why is this coming up now? And I, I said at the top of the broadcast that I feel like he outwore his welcome. And he reminds me of some other figures who kind of outlive their expiration date and some of those issues that have been a part of their lives at previous junctures and times no longer can be kept under the rug because of a social climate. So right now, in the situation that we currently are socially speaking, sexual assault is a huge topic, you know, huge topic of discussion. We've just recently had Ray Rice, we've had Greg Hardy, we've had a whole host of characters. And this is something that's extremely you know, hypersensitive in the public eye. So for him to suddenly have this leak out, I don't think it's necessarily Uh, in relation to anything except for the fact that if he doesn't play these last three years, if he just rides off into the sunset after losing and getting lambasted by the Seahawks, those two years have made an enormous difference in terms of the social climate on how sexual assault is perceived and how vilified the individuals who are involved in those allegations are. And I have I I'm I'm not making a case as to whether that's right, wrong. I'm just trying to you know analyze Peyton's situation in respect to the current social situation. And I think that's what's so interesting, that it's the sexual assault. It's not the HGH. We're not angry at him for cheating potentially. He gets the benefit of the doubt and I don't necessarily think he should, but He's, he's getting a lot of flack for something that happened 20 years ago, not something that happened in the last two.
1: Now, let's look at Jameis Winston. We're talking about a guy, you know, rookie of the year. You know, he was dealing with some serious allegations earlier the year. That story seems to be completely forgotten. Now we're talking about Peyton Manning. You know, obviously, like we said, some serious allegations happening more than 10 years ago. But, you know, it's that sexual assault issue. The NFL just tends to sweep it under the rug, you know, uh... We're talking about a Super Bowl champion, and Peyton's under the limelight now. But again, we saw it with Greg Hardy, we saw it with Ray Rice, we saw, and we saw it with Jameis Winston. The NFL has repeatedly failed to address some of these big time accusations.
0: Oh, absolutely, and I, I, I see something else here that's I, I kind of want to bring up, and this might be a little bit harsh, but I think Peyton has become a victim of his own greed to some extent, and by that. I mean the holistic situation that he's currently in when you include the HGH, you include the sexual assault allegations resurfacing, you include this whole new look at his character in a different light and a very unfavorable light. And I think that's a product of him not being willing to let go. I think a lot of this flack that's come out of his Budweiser thing is also essentially a piece of his own greed. He was not paid to do that. He has a stake in Anheuser-Busch. That was something that he did on his own will, which is also against the NFL's uh, collective bargaining agreement and their deal with Bud Light. Players currently active are not allowed to endorse alcohol products. So while that's something that's kind of gotten uh, you know, it, it pushed aside with the whole sexual assault re- really becoming the hot-button topic right now, it, it's interesting to see perhaps – had he been willing to let go, if he hadn't been so intent on pursuing more playing and more money and more opportunity to get a Super Bowl or whatever his reasons were for to, you know, continuing to play, his own greed at this point has made him not necessarily a villain, but it's certainly tainted that kind of, aw shucks, innocent, I just want to play football. He, he's systematically devalued that image.
1: Right, but... Again, when we talk about letting go, I think we do have to take into you know, account that he did lead his team to you know, a, a conference championship just a season ago. This was a guy, he might not have been at the top of the game, but he was still a premier quarterback in the league. And yeah, this season, obviously, you know, he got hurt. We had Osweiler come in. Uh, everyone knew Peyton was going to come back in the playoffs. But in, in terms of letting go, I, I think people have a tendency
0: to attack winners. I 100% agree with you, and the parallel is very clear with Tom Brady last season. This is not the first time that we're talking about a Super Bowl-winning quarterback have some kind of unrest about him off the field. And he was made a villain, he was made a victim, and all of a sudden, we're talking about Peyton Manning in a similar light, without really anything... Of recent note, I, I, what really baffles me, though, is these HGH allegations. That's recent. That's like last three months recent. And that is by no means the issue at hand. That has been completely cast aside, not just by Peyton, who's been able to push that out of the public's eye, but the public has had no interest in that as an issue, as an affliction. It's been purely the Dr. Jamie Notright situation from 1996, which when you go through and read the documents is horrendous, and it's difficult to see a situation in which anything that he said is true and the cover-up that ensued from that I think is the most concerning it it makes a statement about his character but your point about he's a Super Bowl winning quarterback I don't even necessarily think it's a Super Bowl winning quarterback thing I think it's becoming a Super Bowl quarterback problem Cam Newton is suddenly a villain despite being the most likable player across any sport what is there not to like about the guy he's just too much fun Basically, that's the, the lone complaint you can have. He has too much fun, and apparently, he's a sore loser. But you look at that. You look at Tom Brady last season. You look at some of the other quarterbacks around the league, and this is just, it, becoming a situation where these guys are more highly scrutinized than some politicians. You know, it, it, this is a situation that is almost unthinkable four or five years ago. That who won the Super Bowl four years ago? It was that Drew Brees? Baltimore, maybe? Baltimore, Joe Flacco. So there's no one coming out and accusing Joe Flacco of anything or uncovering documents from when he was at Delaware saying he did X, Y, and Z thing. That's just recent. And I wonder if part of this is the social media age. I wonder if part of this is the existence of Twitter and Facebook and the ability for things to go viral. One of the things that I read this week was suggesting that because 1996 was – Uh, To an extent, like pre-internet, certainly pre-social media, there wasn't really the platform for traction for Peyton's afflictions and the situation with Dr. Not Right to become publicized. I don't know if that's necessarily true. I think it says more about our current climate as it pertains to sexual assault. But why is it that he is being lambasted here, but yet Jameis Winston is being let you know let to run free at this point now? It, it, he had a great season. He's been in the public eye. He won the Rookie of the Year. Is this truly just a Super Bowl issue? That stage has become political. Is, is that what we're looking at now, where year after year we're going to start seeing basically the skeletons aired from every Super Bowl winning or Super Bowl playing quarterback if you look at Cam Newton?
1: Now... One quick distinction. I, I want to be careful when we when we draw parallels between Brady and Peyton. You know, in one situation, you're talking about sexual assault. The other one, we're talking about deflated yeah, balls. Absolutely. Uh, that being said, I, I just can't get over why are we talking about this? Something that happened ten
0: years ago. Twenty. Twenty years 20 ago. Twenty years ago.
1: And also an, uh, another major d- distinction between the Jameis Winston allegations and the Peyton Manning, you know, cases. Winston was, you know, the case was thrown out, you know, Peyton Manning, the the, the articles that, that are coming out, the documents that are coming out, that's some serious stuff. It appears, man, you know, Manning's lying.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to necessarily call him a liar because this didn't find its way into court. It was settled out of court. Certainly all of the cover-up that ensued and some of the testimonies from other individuals is condemning and certainly concerning with respect to his character. But it's kind of interesting to see how this has developed into not just an issue of sexual assault, but it's become kind of a free-for-all in uh, almost stripping away what we want him to be. You know, the public has this sense of what they hope for figures to be. They want someone to be a role model. They want them to be selfless. They want them to be innocent to some extent. They want the aw shucks football. I'm not here for anything but to play the game. Yet, as this stuff is leaked out, all of a sudden, I think a lot of the traction is people who want to see him ripped apart. Not even necessarily people who are have particular issue with what he's been accused of, but they see a winner and they see someone on the highest stage and they want to see them fall.
1: There's no denying that the NFL is the juiciest content in sports media, and as soon as that Super Bowl ends, you know the media digs and digs and digs. And you know, we we just saw a couple of weeks ago Brett Favre get inducted into the Hall of Fame, and you know that Jen Sturger incident where he sent in photos on his phone that seems something. Little Brett. Eons, eons, and eons ago. And there's no doubt in my mind. First off, we don't know for sure if Peyton Manning's walking away for the game. I think he'd be misguided not to, but it's not a sure nail in the coffin thing. But that being said, a year from now, I can't see us talking about these allegations.
0: Oh, I, I think you're completely right there. I mean, how much of a shelf life do these things tend to have? What, maybe six months at their most? The only reason the Brady incident was able to go so long is because he fought it rather than just apologizing and taking suspension. The only reason the Ray Rice thing went so long is because the NFL bungled that up. But typically, these things are very short-lived. We're not talking about Greg Hardy anymore. We're not talking about Jameis Winston anymore. Adrian Peterson. We're not talking about... He he has multiple things. Like, we're really... We've moved on, and if you're Peyton Manning, it's almost like a waiting game, and I get the sense that he's going to come out of this just fine because... To this point in his career, he's shown the willingness and ability to assemble the best PR staff and keep the best group of individuals on retainer of anyone across all of professional sports. Regardless of what's come up, it's just scrubbed clean. The the HGH thing is the perfect example. Scrubbed clean. There's still an investigation going on, and, and he's come out and just said, "I welcome it." That was that. For some, re- why does he get the benefit of the doubt on that topic? I. Find me a situation where someone was accused of taking steroids or performance enhancing drugs and didn't do it. There's not a single one that comes to mind. I can't think of one. Really? You just, you didn't know? There's no way.
1: We we, we all, you know, we all believed Ryan Braun when he came out initially and said
0: he didn't do it, but, you know, he. he, I bet you a a sizable chunk of change, we believed him because he's white. A sizable chunk of change. We don't believe Barry Bonds, because Barry Bonds is brash with the media, and he's black. We don't believe...
1: And he also grew about 300 times
0: his size. That doesn't help. There's certainly evidence there. We don't believe Sammy Sosa, because Sammy Sosa's dark. We want to believe Brian Braun. He's a Southern California guy. He's... uh, uh, He's... there's every reason to think that he would be a good dude, it seems too stupid at this point to actually involve yourself in these things, considering what the testing climate's like. I mean, HGA is a little bit of uncharted water in that the testing for it is very, very recent and very new. So it's something that could, in theory, be a little bit more attractive uh, with the momentum starting to die down as that testing builds. But I heard another point that was brought up that it's not all that ridiculous of to- pursue HGH as something that will become allowed at some point in the NFL under certain restrictions because of its ability to heal injuries and the expectation is that's why Peyton would have done that that's why a lot of these guys say they took performance-enhancing drugs, I mean, there's also the handful like Jose Canseco who say, yeah it just made me really, really good, why wouldn't you want to be super good and make a lot of money? He's totally right there I mean, I get that Lance Armstrong said that he'd do it a thousand times over based on how cycling is, but if this is something that ends up becoming allowed, it won't, it'll never be a norm. But as injuries continue to be a problem as, and as answers are sought after, if this turns out to be one of the answers as it has been potentially pitched to be, is there anything to be upset with Manning about? Is it even cheating?
1: Now, I'm an advocate of doping solely because I think... I agree with you. I think everyone does it. And I think it's naive to think that people don't do it. Sure. And for that reason, you know, can we be upset with Manning? I think it would certainly put a dent in our model, you know, <clears throat> godlike perception of Peyton Manning as arguably one of the greatest faces of professional football of all time.
0: Not the best looking face. Uh, like Tom Brady. <laughs> <rating. laughs>
1: but uh, down, down the road, you know, if we do find out Peyton Manning does it, uh, yeah, it would hurt his image. Would it bar him from the Hall of Fame? I don't know because I don't think in professional football there have been huge names to be as tied to HGH. You know, I, I, a huge case doesn't really come to my mind in the NFL.
0: Yeah, I, I see what you mean there. And this is kind of an issue that you know, the way the NFL has approached it is like it's bad, but it's not off limits. So, like, Major League Baseball has made this like it's a permanent stain. But the NFL has kind of treated it as like, all right, well, you tried to get extra strong, five game suspension. And that's just that, you know, so Sean Merriman and a couple other guys have had multiple suspensions and they've really had a black mark come down on them. But you're right in that. Have we ever really seen an instance where, okay, he took steroids like we hate him now. It's pretty forgivable in football. But I think that what's made this such an issue all of a sudden in in respect to. Peyton, it's the sexual assault, you know? We talked about that for a good chunk of time. I'm curious to see how this is going to develop because we haven't heard a comment from him. We've only seen these articles leak out in the last three, four days. We've only seen the court documents become available this week. It's convenient that it's off-season now. He really just needs to make it all of three weeks until baseball season starts and have something else for the public to put their eye on, but as of now... you get the sense that the momentum's going to die on this pretty fast. It'll die on the vine just like essentially everything that afflicts the major, you know, figureheads and figures in all American sports. You know, if
1: these allegations and, you know, what these documents are saying are as serious, you know, is what we're reading, it's, it's a shame that this didn't come out sooner. But the fact, of, and it did, you know, it came out in those two articles, but it's a shame that it didn't pick up more traction. But again, the fact of the matter is it's the NFL's off season. People are just digging for stuff to talk about. We're talking about something that happened two decades ago.
0: I have a little bit of a conspiracy theory on that, and I wonder if to some extent this has been pushed by the NFL itself. Because I'm a, a, a relatively firm believer that the Deflategate scandal— was a product of the league office to try and generate buzz between the conference championship games and the Super Bowl, knowing that the Pro Bowl would do nothing for them. That turned into something that they didn't expect it to because the media is truly a beast, and the NFL, when you're legitimately the biggest draw in the entire country of any programming during the entire calendar year, they probably could have calculated a little bit better, but you wonder because there are certainly instances where... The league wants to leak things in advance of, of maybe the media or the players. It's just a curious situation because we should have heard about this a long time ago. And it's NFL offseason. How does this do any good for anyone if we're just trying to, you know, get us into the offseason? There has to be some element of keeping eyes and attention on the National Football League. No,
1: I mean, it's an interesting consp- conspiracy. You know, did did the NFL leak this? Uh, I mean, when you look at Deflate Gate, that's not a conspiracy. They were making up stuff as they went along. Yeah, you know that—that's been proven. Uh, and obviously, the NFL season's over. They're, you know, they—they want to rake in those that billion dollars of revenue that they have. And you wonder, you know, could the NFL have, you know, leaked this rehashed those articles that came out in two thousand three?
0: I want to see a FIFA-style scandal in the NFL. I just want to see everything that happens. It would be absolutely amazing them and the NCAA to see all of the the garbage that's been going on behind the scenes would truly make the best book. I I would absolutely love that. Well, we're just about ready for our first break here. You're listening to The Hot Take on 1560 AM and the tuning radio app as well as online at kxsc.org. This is your host, Cooper Perkins, with Garrett the Intern on for the first time. Garrett Schwartz joining us. He'll be with us through the duration of the program. We're going to come back and talk Some USC hoops fresh off of a brutal trip to the desert. And then we'll segue that into a little bit of NBA trade rumors. For now, you're listening to The Hot Take. Stay tuned for more action. Well, we're back here in the KXSC studio in the basement of the Tudor Campus Center. This is Cooper Perkins, your host of The Hot Take. We've got Garrett, the intern, Garrett Schwartz, joining us for the first time this season as we broadcast on 1560amkxsc.org and the TuneIn Radio app. Follow us on Twitter at the Hot underscore take. We're going to transition into some USC men's hoop, just like every week. And if you've been listening to The broadcast weekly, either live on Tuesdays or in the hotcast that posted on iTunes, SoundCloud, and of course the TuneIn app as well. You've become very familiar with my opinions on USC basketball. I'm of the mindset that this SC basketball team is a little bit overrated. And I think there's some pretty solid foundation to back that up. Now, this team that has been anointed. The best SC basketball team since Nick Young and the 2004-2005 squads suddenly is sitting at 18-7 and seven with six games left to play. And I've made the case multiple times throughout this season that it's a race to 22 wins for this team. If they win 22 games, go 11-7 and seven in Pac-12 play, they will undoubtedly be a tournament team. Now, that's becoming a little bit more difficult because they've got six games to win four. Now you could add on the Pac-12 tournament as well. We don't know if they're going to be in there for a bye yet. We don't know if they're going to have to have a play-in round. I think they're more likely to get that extra win if they end up as a five seed and have to have a play-in game. But I digress on that point because of these last six games, they do have four at home. We know they're 14-0 and at home. We know that that's truly been their place. As of this point in the season, they have just three wins in true road games. The one other win coming in the tournament against uh, Wichita State over Thanksgiving. But as of now, 14 of their 18 wins in the Galen Center. How are they going to get to 22? Who's it going to come through? Colorado tomorrow night. Utah this weekend. The Oregon schools. And, uh, oh yeah, a trip up north to take on Cal, who is dynamite at home and Stanford, who is probably the closest thing to a sure win of that six. When you go through that list, though, there is not a single game that I say they can't lose that. Colorado, who for some reason has been declared an almost automatic win, is very quietly 19-7. and seven. This team's second place in the conference and has low-key made themselves just a game back of Oregon. So we're going to go ahead and not treat that as a sure win because it's not None of the games are. There's no team left in the schedule that's below 100th in RPI. So when we look at that, that race to 22 wins is getting a little bit hairy. They've got six games to win four. Why is 22 wins, though, the number that I keep harping on? Well, if you look at the odds to make the NCAA tournament by win total, the jump from 21 wins to 22 wins is almost 40%. A 21-win team in a Power 5 conference has a 56% chance in the average year of making the NCAA tournament. A 22-win team has a 92.2% chance. So you do the math and tell me which one you'd rather be, the 21-win team or the 22-win team. So as this team is trying to get to that 22-win threshold, things are getting a little bit tough. And why do I say that? Well, for starters, they've proven that they are not just not as good on the road, they are a bad road team. They cannot win consistently on the road. They started slow. They weren't able to catch up. They got stuck in a defensive battle against Arizona State, which is the worst kind of game for this team. And then they were found the situation against Arizona where they came out so slow that they had to try and overcome a 19-point deficit. The fact that they were able to get back in that game says a lot, but it says even more that they were in that situation. And I think my takeaway from this weekend isn't as it pertains to the major pillars of SC basketball that I've talked about this season, which are three-point shooting, free-throw shooting, the battle in the paint, and adjustments. No, it's not those. It's leadership. And this is where we start to see the fact that this is still one of the ten youngest teams in the Power Five conferences. There is one senior, which is something that we often use as almost an exciting piece of information saying there's only one senior on this team. Everyone's coming back. Well, that's starting to hurt this team a little bit down the stretch run because they don't have a leader. I love Jordan McLaughlin. He's a floor manager. Julian Jacobs is a floor manager and an explosive athlete. They're not the leader that, the teams need, that this team needs right now. There, there's no Frank Kaminsky here. There's no... Andrew Andrew's from Washington. There's no one on this team who's going to get all the young guys together, smack them around a little bit, and tell them to wake up. We're on the road. This isn't the Galen Center. We can't fall behind by 15 and expect to win. The maturity is becoming an impediment for this basketball team. And, Garrett, this is where I want to bring you into the discussion. Have you seen anything from this SC basketball team to suggest otherwise? Because they're going to find themselves in a situation where, even if they do make the NCAA tournament, where they're going to be away from the Galen Center, in a situation where the crowd is very likely not rooting for them. So even if they're in that situation, I can't see them making a serious run into the tournament. But as it pertains to these last six games, where's the leadership going to come from? And if it doesn't, can, can they win four of the last six? I, I don't even think they can win two of the last six if they continue to have this kind of issue.
1: Now, I, I, I totally agree. I, I, don't, I don't think there's much to the, this USC basketball team. And, in fact, I think it's a team that's thrived in a Pac-12, everyone-beats-everyone everyone conference.
0: I, I agree with that sentiment completely. And I think that the notion that the Pac-12 is a strong conference could equally be argued in the opposite direction. So these wins are – it's almost a bubble, in a sense, saying that the Pac-12 is strong. Well, we don't really know that. The Pac-12 just beats up the Pac-12. Does that actually mean anything? And come Selection Sunday, we'll find out how much those games are valued. But back to your point about how this SC team is you know, potentially a product of that so-called strong Pac-12, but r- really it's a lot of parity.
1: Now, the fact of the matter is if USC is hitting their shots, if USC is shooting lights out, I think they can beat anyone in the country. So that's, it's, it's as simple as that. When you have six guys, seven guys, you know, as deep down Elijah Stewart hitting, hitting shots from really— All around, Benny Boatwright's on his game. You know, he obviously struggled in both games this weekend. We can beat anyone. But let let me ask you this. Let's say we don't reach 21 or 22, and, you know, we take into account that we only have one senior on the team. Pretty much everyone's coming back next season. We're talking about a team that finished 12th of 12 in the Pac-12 last year. If we don't make the big dance, is
0: this season a failure? Oh, not at all. I've been of the mindset from day one that... This team is seeking improvement, and I was hoping for a top half of the Pac-12 finish. So anything six or above, I would consider a large leap and a successful season. This is the same kind of instance where... For our football team, my definition of a successful season was winning the Pac-12 South. That was the logical next step after finishing second last year and being one of two Hail Marys away from actually winning the division. All it takes is Jalen Strong not catching it or Austin Hill not catching one for Arizona as those desert schools just completely screwed things up for this team. But that seemed like the logical step. Granted, the way the season went, it's hard to stick to that As actually being a success but by the definition that I gave it was and in the same way I think that this basketball team is destined for a similar fate so I think they'll be a top six finisher I think the improvement is the most encouraging thing because they've taken athletes and they've taught them how to shoot and the next step is to teach them how to play basketball and as that develops this team is going to be very very good in the future I think they're a year ahead of schedule if they make the tournament The idea that this team could potentially be in the tournament truly blows my mind. This is a a program that had as few as six wins four years ago. So the idea that they're seriously contending to not just sneak into the tournament but actually be a 5-6 seed if they did win those 22 games, then I I don't think you can call this a failure, even if they lose out. It's a disappointing finish, but I still think it's a a success. Would you disagree with that?
1: No, this season, I think... Regardless of where we go the next four or five games, however many are left, is a success. You know, and, and it's solely based on expectations. That being said, the problem that I see this season and going into the future, which I don't know if that gets fixed by guys coming back and leadership and whatnot, has been the rebounding. We are getting killed on the boards.
0: You're a hundred percent right, and that's one of the issues that I've highlighted multiple times throughout the season. And what is such a huge problem there is that's more of a symptom than a cause. It's a symptom of the style that we play because basically on rebound, on defensive situations, we're leaking at least three, sometimes four guys out to try and get out and run and start the break and leaving one, maybe two guys in to try and pull down the board. That's consistently not going our way. We don't have the rebounding presence that we need. There's some whispers that we're actually in some pretty exciting situation and position to land uh any number of grad transfers so if they could add an athletic rebounding big man that would completely change the game for this team i think because that would allow them to keep their leak out style in play without surrendering the vast number of offensive rebounds they have it's some of the, the games that they've won beating ucla twice beating arizona at home shocking to me those are teams with dominant big men that should be absolutely abusing sc and we're starting to see that show up a little bit i think as the three-point shooting goes away we can't play the three points to your two every time it's starting to make itself felt more it's been a problem the whole year there's just been band-aids to cover it up
1: no absolutely i mean you know uh, and, and i think when you look at that use those UCLA wins and that Arizona wins the rebounding wasn't an issue simply because we were shooting lights out. Exactly. When you're not missing shots, you know, having to rely on offensive rebounds and whatnot it's not a problem.
0: Right. And then you get in these situations where you go up to Oregon State, you go up to Oregon, you come down to Arizona State, you're playing teams who are getting second chance or grinding on you, and all of a sudden these are games that aren't going the SC's way. They're not equipped to win the the low-scoring close matchups because they don't do fundamental things well. They defend well purely because they're athletic. There is no real defense on this team. They're long, they're athletic, and the defense has come as a product. They barely work on their defense, which it's been okay to this point. They haven't gotten torched offensively, but they haven't figured out a way to translate that defensive athleticism in offense on the other end that, those things shouldn't be mutually exclusive it shouldn't be buckle down and play defense or get out and run it should be use your athleticism on defense to create opportunities to get out and run and as this team gets a little bit older and spends more time playing together i think that will start to bridge the gap but what's more concerning for me than anything else is the way that they struggle to build momentum, not just on the season, but with the larger context of the program. I did the broadcast for the UCLA game at home, the sellout, uh, with Jeffrey Dubrov, who hosts a show on Sunday nights, Listen to the Sports Hour with him and his interns as well. But what we were talking about is that was a huge game for the momentum of the program. That was the first time there was excitement. That was the first time that the attendance was really impressive. And it would have been a huge loss to lose that game, not just on the rivalry stage, not just in terms of wins and loss columns, but just because of the way that that would stop the program's momentum in its tracks. You get the biggest crowd in five years out to the Galen Center to lose. They won that game. But then they go on the road. They're a ranked team for the second time this season, and it's the same result as the first time they were ranked. They drop back-to-back games, and they're stopped dead in their tracks. This is an issue that I don't know if it's coaching, players, youth, they need more program momentum to consistently build if they want to take those next steps. They're fun, they're exciting, but sometimes, you know, there's not that consistent product that makes you say, this team is moving in the right direction consistently. It's two steps forward, one step back, sometimes three forward, two back. It's just a situation where the program is going to struggle to build until they can string these wins together and prove that they're moving in that direction, not just hovering around better, but actually moving towards good.
1: I think the culprit of that inconsistency is simply turnovers. I was I, I was watching the Arizona State game, and it looked like Jordan McLaughlin was playing hot potato with the basketball. He must have turned the ball over five times in the span of two minutes. Now, I don't know if that's a young thing. I don't know if that's a, a coaching thing. But the fact of the matter is when you can't take care of the basketball, you're not going to see that consistent play. I, the The half-court defense, it hasn't been great. It's been spotty. Uh, the half-court offense, I think it's been one of our strengths this season. Obviously, the Which, trend-
0: is, which is surprising based on how the team's structured, but I, I would agree with you on that, that they have, the half-court offense has certainly been uh, one of the better points. They've had great ball movement, and I think the guard play has been excellent. But as you were saying, the defense is something that's been spotty at best, and you wonder exactly what the causes of some of these things are.
1: I think it's the transition defense. It's when we're turning the ball over on offense, when we're not hitting our shots, when we're not playing like that lights-out team, we get beat in transition.
0: I, I, that, that definitely seems to follow. And you look at how this game broke down against Arizona State, 17 turnovers. When you're minus 5 in the turnover margin, that that's usually a pretty bad sign. Julian Jacobs, who is someone who needs to take care of the ball more, Seven turnovers against ASU, that's a team's worth in a good game. I I, I struggle to see how this team can bridge that gap without cutting down the turnovers, but also part of that, I think, has become partially the the client. It's not all carelessness with the ball. Some of this is offensive fouls. Some of this is off-ball positional fouls. You see Benny Boatwright fouling out against Arizona State without scoring a point. I think that's a great example of kind of this team's struggles. He's someone they need playing, and they need him playing important minutes, hitting big shots, and making his presence felt as that stretch four. When he's not in the game, he's not stretching the defense out that way. That's a problem. And if he's getting off-ball fouls, if he's getting called for positional fouls, wrapping his arm around someone, those are learning tools that i'm not convinced that this coaching staff is taking advantage of to really ingrain in these guys exactly how they need to play the game i don't know if enfield is necessarily the iq developer that some other coaches around the conference might be i look at like lorenzo romar at washington as a guy who develops basketball players enfield's developing shooters at a torrid pace but i wonder and we'll see more next year and how this stretch run finishes out Are these guys basketball players, or are they just athletic guys who are learning how to shoot? Uh,
1: I I think the answer to that question is, you know, we we look at a guy like Julian Jacobs, who I think has improved immensely throughout the season. He's he's leading the league. He's leading the Pac-12 in assists per game, a huge facilitator. I'd certainly make the argument he's certainly a basketball player, not just a scorer. And and because Julian Jacobs, uh, obviously one of the older guys on the team, you know, a junior. I think what that means is, looking ahead, it's, it's it's something that time fixes. It's something that these these freshmen, these Benny Boatwrights, you know, a season or two from yet now, these silly mistakes, these offensive fouls, uh, these turnovers. McLaughlin again, only a sophomore, he's turning the ball over too much. It's something that's going to get corrected over time. And I think I think Andy Enfield uh, realizes these problems. Uh, he fixes them over the off season. And you know, as as SC basketball fans, we just got to hope and pray that the future takes care of it.
0: I think you're spot on with that. And I think they would be fortunate to go one and one this weekend. If they can split with Colorado and Utah, I think they'd be fortunate. I think right now they should be working towards a three and three finish. A four and two finish would be dynamite. I think if they can win three out of these last six, if they can beat Oregon State at home, if they can beat Colorado at home and steal one against Stanford or Cal, probably Stanford being the weaker of those two teams, especially with Cal playing at Haas Pavilion, a 3-3 and situation would put them at 21 wins with the opportunity to add in the conference tournament. So if if that's what it comes to, I think that they would be in a, a solid situation. But we'll see. The maturity is going to be a huge factor. How they shoot the ball is going to be a huge factor. We saw that come up dry against uh, Arizona State, but then it showed up against Arizona. They hit the threes in the second half, seven out of 11 to start the second half. That was a huge catalyst in them being able to get back in the game. But it seems like every week we talk about these unknowns that sort of crop up. This week it's maturity. Last week it was rebounding. The week before that it was free throw shooting. It's just interesting to see how these... Issues start to unveil themselves as we move towards the end of the season. And we'll see. This team has a lot of potential. We've seen that. We know that. They can score in bunches, but they can also just not show up to the court sometimes. This is the Hot Take on 1560 AM, KXSC.org, and the Tuning Radio app. Follow us on Twitter at thehot underscore take. This episode will be hotcasted tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. on SoundCloud. iTunes free for downloading and the Tuning Radio app. So give us a subscription and a download. We're going to talk some NBA trade rumors. And I want to start with Blake Griffin because somehow one of the brightest young talents in the nba is getting floated around as a potential trade candidate whether this is a product of the clippers actually playing better without him in the lineup or his issues punching the equipment manager in toronto we don't know all we know is doc rivers and steve Ballmer are in charge here we know that blake could be on the move we know his contract expires after next year And we also know that apparently the Clippers reached out to the Denver Nuggets and asked for four of their top six scorers, including Gallinari and Fareed, not to mention Jokic, who is one of the brightest young big men in the game. Denver, as I would also, very adeptly declined that offer, as that's... A little bit steep of an asking price for uh, stock on its way down. Don't really want to catch the falling knife in the form of Blake Griffin, who's still going to be out another four to five weeks. But it still begs the question, what should the Clippers do with Blake Griffin? They clearly have a high asking price, but I, you, you have to think there are some teams in the NBA that would love to have him. They would be willing to take that almost expiring deal with the expectation that they could make either a strong pitch or just capitalize on those two you know, one one-and-a-half years that they're going to have with him. But I don't know. Garrett, what do you think in terms of Blake Griffin? Are, are there any landing spots that you would see where he would make sense from a marketing perspective or a team play perspective? Because I don't really see a perfect fit, but I certainly am thinking the Clippers are not that anymore.
1: This is silly. This is just really silly because we're talking about a guy who is valued, you know, easily one of the premier, <coughs> premier players in the league, you know, viewed as a distraction over the, the last month or so. But when you're talking about winning championships, and that's clearly what you're doing by bringing Doc Rivers to L.A., that's clearly what you're trying to do when you have a core of Chris Paul, uh, DeAndre Jordan, Blake Griffin. They're not, get, they're not trading Blake Griffin. They need this guy to get healthy, get back on the basketball court. You're going to have that instant chemistry, and they're going to make a run in the playoffs. And simply all this is, this NBA trade buzz, is, is a, it's a distraction. And it's going to end as soon as Blake Griffin gets back on that court.
0: I, I, I think you're right. The only reason that I'm even remotely of the mindset that the Clippers might want to deal him is just purely what Steve Ballmer said and how he thinks there need to be consequences and Blake needs to get punished. And maybe that punishment is a trade. But if you're trying to maybe you know look around and see what you could get for Blake Griffin and you find out from Denver, you can't get as much as you think you can. You're probably going to put him in your back pocket. Now, there are some other teams, though, that are floating some stuff around here, namely your Miami Heat with another young big man at the peak of the NBA, more than a full shot block a game ahead of anyone else in the NBA, north of three and a half, and that's Hassan Whiteside. Now, they're not so happy with some of the situation that he's created in Miami for reasons unbeknownst to me, but they're looking to move him. There's been some discussion. All around the league, what's your take on Hassan Whiteside and how long he might be wearing a heat uniform? Now, first off, the
1: situation with the heat gets a little bit tricky, you know, taking into account what we've learned over the last 24 hours. We might be losing Chris Bosch for the entire season. You know, the, the chances of contending
0: to the East are a little bit murky. That being said, think about what that means, though. contending in the East might be a little bit murky. Ouch. Cleveland is just light years. Are they, though? They are. Are they really? I I, I had this argument last week that there are two kinds of teams in the league. The team that has LeBron and all the other teams that don't have LeBron. And that shows come playoff time. But there's no reason the Heat shouldn't be at the worst the four seed. Chris Bosh or no Chris Bosh, the East is a dumpster fire.
1: Well, Chris Bosh or no Chris Bosh, I, I, I'd be careful with that. I mean, he is the points-leading scorer you know, up to this point in the season. But the Heat's problem hasn't been Hassan Whiteside. The Heat's problem is they're one of the only four teams in the league that haven't scored 120 points at any point in the season. Their problem has been the scoring. You know, if, if the Heat are going to make a title run, make a playoff run, uh, you know, in the East— uh, you know, meet meet LeBron James in the conference championship. They're going to have to find a guy who can score in the perimeter. And Hassan Whiteside, I agree he's a distraction. That being said, there's no solution. Dwight Howard, he's not going to be any better. DeMarcus Cousins, yeah, of course he'd be better, but the, the the Sacramento Kings would have to be out of their mind to deal him. Hassan, Hassan Whiteside is going to be on the heat for the remainder of the season. They, if, if the Heat are going to make a run, they need Chris Bosh to be healthy, but and it, they it, need an outside score. The
0: issue with Whiteside is he's going to be a free agent after this season, and I don't know if the Heat think that they're going to be able to retain him. But who wants him? Who Who would take there, Hassan I, I would Whiteside. bet you money there are probably 15 teams in the NBA right now that would line up to give Hassan Whiteside a $15 million a year contract.
1: And I think you're wrong, because I think Pat Riley sure as hell knows if he could dump Hassan Whiteside for, hell, a second-round pick, I think he would have done it in a heartbeat.
0: I, I, I can't see that in any way. I, th- th- there's no way that Pat Riley, who's one of the, the brightest basketball minds, is just thinking about keeping Hassan Whiteside because he can re-sign him for What would you value him at? What would you, what would you value his skill set at? He's a top-five rebounder. He's the best shot blocker and rim protector in the entire NBA by a lot.
1: This guy is a stat producer. He's simply a stat producer. When, when you look at the Miami Heat's productivity numbers throughout the season, they're simply better with Hassan Whiteside off the court. The, fa- the fact of the matter is he's going to be gone. And no one wants to take a guy who brings baggage to the team, especially a, a team that's making a title run. Hassan Whiteside is not your, your, your fix-it for a team that's borderline making a title run. First off, we have to keep in mind that there are four teams that are just light years ahead of, ahead of everyone else in the league. That's Oklahoma a, City.
0: You make that point, and that is a, a really important thing to keep an eye on in these trade talks, that a lot of this really just doesn't matter. If there's anyone that could maybe benefit enough to move into that upper echelon, it's Boston. But outside of that, is is there any purpose to these trade talks outside of just kind of buzz and fun? No, I don't think so. Because at the
1: end of the day, it's San Antonio, it's Oklahoma City, it's Golden State, and I don't think anyone's touching Cleveland in the East, and then no one is even close.
0: I, I tend to agree with you. I think that Boston is is interesting because of all the assets that they have. And if they could figure out a way to pull in, I, I, I don't know. I think Hassan Whiteside would be a huge addition for them. Right? They've got the I, I, I think if
1: you're the Boston Celtics, you're looking for a veteran more than anything else. I, I don't think adding a, a 26-year-old Hassan Whiteside in all his baggage is, is bringing you to the NBA Finals. That being said, how much is Boston willing to sacrifice for Hassan Whiteside? Again, knowing his contract is up in a
0: year. Well, if if Pat Riley is willing to get rid of him, as you say for a second-round pick. Boston's got three first-rounders. So if they're just going to do a straight-up swap, a first-rounder for Hassan Whiteside, I'm sure Danny Ainge can live with his $980,000 contract for what he's producing. So be it if he wants to leave after the season. It's a trial run. They can offer him a big contract if they want. They can offer him the biggest contract if they want. But I don't see a downside. If they're looking at someone like Dwight Howard, who they're not going to get, they're not going to move the pieces, I don't think he's going to end up going anywhere from, from Houston. But... The need is in the middle. He brings a lot of things that they don't have. They don't need him to score. Like you mentioned in the Heat, their issues are scoring. He doesn't fix that. Boston doesn't need that. They've got Isaiah Thomas. They've got dudes that can fill it up. They need that rim protector, and there's no one better in the league than Hassan Whiteside.
1: Yeah, it, 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 it's, it's interesting to think about would Boston be willing to part with a first-round pick for Hassan Whiteside, and, and I don't think so. Um, would the heat do that Again, I, I think the heat would do that in a heartbeat if they could get a first round pick for a guy who's potentially leaving at the end of the season you know that's that's obviously debatable uh, I, I think they do it in a heartbeat Would he fit in with Boston? Again, it's questionable I just again, I just think Boston is so far behind even if Boston makes it to the NBA Finals, how the hell is that team going to be able to compete? with the Golden State Warriors or the San Antonio Spurs.
0: Is it and that, worth that's to, the, the key point here. Those yeah. first round
1: picks are just way too valuable for a guy who you don't even know if he's going to be around in a few years.
0: But that, that's the thing. How valuable are those first round picks in actuality? Because everyone around the, lo- the league looks at those first round picks and says, okay, they have three first round picks. That's That's great. Now, outside of probably the top five players in this year's draft, there's not much. It's a weak draft. They have this year's pick. They have next year's pick. They have the year after that's picked from from uh, Brooklyn. So if they're going to move one of those picks, it, I I don't see why they wouldn't do that. If they're going to take one out of those three and maybe move a, a young player, maybe a Terry Rozier or something like that, who's not really contributing at this point, who they're not sure what they're going to get out of long-term, take Hassan Whiteside, take his risk, take his potential to leave after this season. I still think you're completely right in that they aren't on that level to compete with the teams like Golden State, San Antonio, and Oklahoma City. But I also think that Cleveland is not nearly as untouchable as you're, as you're making them here. There's They will be there in the Eastern Conference Finals. If there is a team, however, that can give them a run in a seven-game series, it's going to be Boston. If Boston adds that piece as the rim protector, the rebounder, the athletic presence in the middle that they need, I see that contest, instead of being a, it's Boston's job to try and force seven, now, I, to for Boston, so, under the right circumstances, could win that.
1: I I, I don't think it's Boston. I, I think the next team out of the East is Toronto to be...
0: Really? Really. Well, we're running out of time. I'll give you a minute to make your case on that, then we're going to have to head off the air for Annenberg Radio News. You're listening to the Hot Take on 1560 AM, the TuneIn Radio app and KXSC.org. The intern, Garrett Schwartz, giving his Hot Take as to why he thinks Toronto is the next best team in the East, not Boston.
1: I think Toronto's been, certainly Toronto and Boston, have been exciting teams to watch this season. Uh, Toronto, I I love their backcourt, Kyle Lowry and DeMar DeRozan. But at the end of the day... It just goes back to the Boston Celtics. They're putting their trust in Brad Stevens. You're excited with the progress so far. You have three first-round draft picks. Hassan Whiteside is not winning you an NBA championship. It's trust the process. And one or two, three years from now, we may have a team that competes with the San Antonios and the Golden States. But doing it right now for, for Hassan Whiteside,
0: it's not the answer. Well, there you have it. Hassan Whiteside is not the answer. We'll see how this trade deadline unfolds. The 18th. This Thursday will be the final opportunity to make the moves. For now, you have listened to the hot take on KXSC 1560, KXSC.org, and the TuneIn Radio app. Catch us on the hot cast tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. on SoundCloud, available for download free of charge on iTunes and, of course, the TuneIn app as well. This is Cooper Perkins and Garrett Schwartz signing off for this week. We'll be back on next week, same time, same place. Don't miss any of the hot take action. I